Paul says, when you take a debt, pay it. When you take an obligation, fulfill it. Now, I want you to be careful here because some people have taken verse 8 and they've taken the first four words and put a period after them. And then they've built a doctrine on that phrase, owe nothing to anyone. And they say you should never borrow money. There are guys traveling the country teaching seminars saying you should never borrow anything. Well, is that what this verse is teaching? No. In fact, the literal translation of this first phrase is stop continuing to owe. See, Paul's point is don't borrow something and then not pay it back. See, he's not saying that the Christian should never borrow money. In fact, the idea of borrowing and lending is presented favorably throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 5:42, "Give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you." Jesus says when somebody wants to borrow from you, lend. Now is Jesus saying it's right to lend, but it's wrong to borrow? No. You see, there's nothing wrong with borrowing money or anything else. There is something wrong with the way you borrow. Or Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows and does not pay back. You see, it's not wrong to borrow. It is wrong to borrow when I know I either can't or I won't pay it back. Now, the problem for many Americans is that borrowing has become a way of life. Debt, debt financing has become a way of life. In fact, we've got a bad example in the United States, and that's our government. We live in a country where our national debt has exceeded $4 trillion. Now, if you're anything like me, you have no idea how much $4 trillion is. But if we break that down, $4 trillion is $16,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. And at 6% interest, the interest alone on $4 trillion is $657 million a day. And if we decided we were going to pay it off, and we set up a repayment plan of paying off $1 billion per day. You know how long it would take us to pay off $4 trillion? Including the interest at paying $1 billion a day, it would take us 11,000 years to pay off our country's debt. So we have a bad example in the United States, but... Our problem on a personal note is this. I, I found one source that said 80% of Americans owe more than they own. Now, I'm shocked by that. I don't know how you substantiate a statement like that. But 80% of Americans owe more than they own. Now, if that's even close to right, that means over half of, the, of Americans have no net worth. We couldn't sell off what we own now and pay off our debt. Over half of Americans are in debt over their heads. And the biggest trap is credit cards. 
Almost all creditworthy adults have at least one credit card, and the average American has seven credit cards. Money Magazine reports that the average balance per person on their credit cards is $1,450. And yet, consumer credit companies continue to bombard us with appeals to, to add just one more credit card. I bet I get an average of three a week. And the opening line is always, Mr. Green, you have such good credit that you are pre-approved for this card. But you know what I realized? They don't really care if I have good credit. In fact, they would prefer that my credit be a little suspect. Ron Blue, in his book, Master Your Money, talks about a discussion he had with a banker friend. The banker told him that in the banking industry, a person who pays his bills right away is known as a deadbeat because they know they're not going to get a whole lot of interest out of this guy. Now, that's funny, isn't it? Two decades ago, the deadbeat was the guy who didn't pay his bills. Now the deadbeat is the guy who pays on time. I have one credit card, and I try to only use it for trips, only when I have to use it out of town. In February, I went on a pastor's, to a pastor's conference in Phoenix, and I ran up close to $1,500 on the credit card in two different months. Well, the first bill came in as about $300, and I set it aside, and I forgot about it. And I didn't pay it on time. I was a few days late. Well, when the next bill came in the next month, it was $1,200, but it included a $35 finance charge. Well, I paid that off, and then this month I got my new bill. I, I used the credit card none, but I got a new bill, and now I've got $19 and something in interest that I have to pay. You see, now I'm no longer a deadbeat, so I'll probably start getting more offers. This verse says, don't owe anyone anything. Don't continue in debt. Pay back what you owe. You say, well, what if I'm over my head in debt already and I, I don't know how to get out of it? Well, let me give you three quick steps. Number one, stop borrowing. You need to do some plastic surgery. You need to cut up your credit cards. Step two, start spending less than you make. Now, isn't that simple? Make a budget, not on what you want, but on what you make on your income. Spend less than you make. And then thirdly, start paying back what you owe. Because that's what Paul is telling us here. He's telling us that when I have debts, I'm to pay them when they're due. I'm not to leave them outstanding. I'm not to default on them. You see, the real issue here is that bad credit is a bad testimony. You see, I should only have one obligation that I continue to owe. You see, I should have no obligation to any man except one. That's what this verse tells me. But there is one continuous debt that you and I have that we will never own the deed to. We will never burn the note on it. We will never finish paying it off, and that's love. 
He says we have a continuous debt of love. And who do we owe? Look again at verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now in the Greek there are two words for another. One means another of the same kind. The other word means another of a different kind. And Paul, interestingly enough, uses a second Greek word here. You see, you're not just to love people of your own kind. That's easy. Paul is saying you're to love people of a different kind. So you are under obligation to everyone you know, everyone you meet, everyone you see, to love them. That's a pretty overwhelming exhortation until we realize that God has given us the capacity to carry it out. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because He first loved us. Jesus in His prayer in John 17, verse 26 said, The love you have for Me is in them. The love that God has for His Son Jesus Christ is in you. So you have the capacity to love like God loves. And earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, it says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. And so we have a limitless capacity to love because we have God in us loving with His love through us. We have a limitless capacity to love, but along with that, he tells us in this verse, we have a limitless debt. We are continuously indebted to love other people. And this is one of those unique debts. It's a debt that the more you pay it, the more it increases. Have you noticed that? The more you show love to other people, the, the deeper that principle of love gets inside of you, and the more you become aware of opportunities and needs and others. The more you pay the debt, the greater it gets. You say, well, that sounds great, but why do I owe people a debt of love? Especially those people that don't seem to care and certainly won't reciprocate. Well, he answers that also in verse 8. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for or because he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Love is the bottom line. It's the summation. It's the capstone of everything God desires for us. And here Paul says, love fulfills the law. Now this is not an isolated verse. Remember in Matthew 22 when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them. That's just another way of saying love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Paul said in Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
You say, well, how does loving my neighbor fulfill the law? Well, Paul explains it in verses 9 and 10. Notice verse 9. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he basically lists there the last half of the Ten Commandments. You shall not, shall not, shall not, shall not. And then he says, if there's any other commandment, you name it. It's summed up in this one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How does that work, Paul? Verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You see, if I love you, I'm not going to steal your car. If I love you, I'm not going to murder you. If I love you, I'm not going to take your wife. If I love you, I'm not going to assassinate your character. If I love you, I'm not going to covet your nice big house or your new boat. You see, coveting is desiring the very best for me at your expense. And love is the very opposite of that. Love is desiring the very best for you at my expense. And so love is really the positive side of all these negative commandments. And so all you have to do is love your neighbor as yourself. Now that simplifies life, doesn't it? I don't have to remember all those commandments. I just have to remember one thing. And that is, I owe everyone a debt of love that I can never repay, and I need to be continually paying off that debt. And that, in essence is the Christian's responsibility and relationship to society. That's it. Love. Now, after saying that, we reach a bit of a transition point in verse 11. Because Paul has been telling us what to do, and now at the close of chapter 13, he's going to tell us when to do it. Now, he's told us a lot of things to do beginning in the first verse of chapter 12. He said, present your body to God. Don't be conformed to the world. Function as God has gifted you in the body of Christ. Love your neighbor. Practice hospitality. Be in subjection to the civil government. Love your neighbor. He said all those things that we ought to do. Now the question is, when should I do it? Now I find that most people by nature are procrastinators. We all have good intentions. If I pinned you down, every one of you in here would probably say, I'm going to get around to living for God. And as we went through chapter 12 and into chapter 13, I'm sure there were things there that struck you as they did me. And you said, you know, I need to present my body totally to God. I need to humbly start using my spiritual gift and get involved. I need to volunteer for that ministry. I need to honor others over myself. I need to be a peacemaker in relationships. I need to stop taking revenge when I feel I've been wrong. I need to start submitting to the laws of the government. I need to love my neighbor as myself. I need to do that. I'm going to get around to that. That's something I've been meaning to do. Well, if you're saying that, then verse 11 is for you. Because here Paul says, and this do. That's simple, isn't it? This do. Stop thinking about it. 
Stop talking about it. Stop considering it. Stop intending to do it. Stop getting around to it. And Paul says, do it. Now, a misconception that we have as Christians is that we believe that intentions are the same as actions. Don't we? See, I see a need and I'm stirred emotionally. I'm concerned. I'm burdened. I say I'm going to do something about that, but I don't do anything. And somehow I convince myself that it's okay because I meant to. I have a misconception that intentions are the same as actions. James said in James 2.15, if you see your brother or sister without clothing and in need of daily food, and you say, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, you see your brother in need and you say, I care, I'm concerned, I'm burdened, I mean well, but I don't do anything. James says, what use is that? And the answer is zero. You see, when I say I care, but I don't do anything, I'm no better than the person who openly says, I don't care. In fact, in many ways, I'm worse off than that person. Because James said this in James 1.22. He said, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. People who hear the truth, have good intentions, mean to get around to it, and never do anything, are actually deluding themselves. They are deceived. And what's the delusion? Delusion? It is that intentions are the same as actions, and they're not. You see, God is interested in your actions of love. In Matthew 21, Jesus told a story about a man who had two sons. He said he went to the first son and he said, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. And his son said, Yes, sir, I'll do it. And then he went and laid on the couch and watched Sports Center. Never went to the vineyard. So he went to his second son. He said, Son, go work in the vineyard. And his second son said, I'm not going to the vineyard. But afterwards, he regretted what he said to his father, and he went to the vineyard. And Jesus asked the question, which one of the two did the will of his father? And the answer was the latter. It was the one who actually went. You see, intentions are great if they lead to actions. But if they don't lead to actions, then they're not only fruitless, but they're deceptive. And so Paul's exhortation is crucial in verse 11. He says, and this do. And then he follows that with three steps to get us moving. And those three steps are wake up, dress appropriately, and walk properly. Those are the three things my mom used to say to me every morning. Wake up, and then she'd say dress appropriately, but appropriately, but she'd say it something like this. You're not wearing that to school, are you? <laughs> Wake up, dress appropriately, and then she'd say, now stay on the sidewalk on your way to school. Don't get in the mud puddle. Wake up, dress appropriately, and walk properly. Those are the three things he tells us. First of all, he says, wake up. Notice verse 11. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. My daughter, Lindsay, loves her snooze button. In fact, 
she sets her alarm extra early just so she can hit the snooze button a couple times because she loves to be in that sort of dreamy state between asleep and awake. And Paul's telling us in this verse that a lot of Christians are like that spiritually. The alarm has gone off, and we've hit the snooze button, or some of us have hit the off button, or we've pulled the plug out of the wall, and we're asleep. Now, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, sleep is a state of inactivity with the loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. Some of us are asleep. Some Christians are spiritual Rip Van Winkles. And we're sleeping our lives away. You know how you can tell if you're asleep right now spiritually? One quick way is, is this. If you're saying, one of these days, I'm going to get serious with God. One of these days, I'm going to really serve Him. One of these days, I'm going to join a small group, or I'm going to get in a Bible study, or I'm going to get an accountability part. One of these days, if you're saying that, you're snoozing. And Paul says, wake up. And he says, wake up, because it's much later than we think. Notice the end of verse 11. He says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, the aspect of salvation he's talking about here is our future salvation, our full salvation. He's talking about when Jesus Christ comes back and we're made to be like him, when we're glorified. You say, well, when is Jesus coming back? I don't know, but I do know this. It's nearer than it's ever been. You know, at this point in time in history, we have never been nearer to the coming of Christ. We are at the point in history of the church, we've never been nearer to the coming of Christ. And yet, as I read the book of Acts, I say to myself, where's the urgency that I saw in the early church? You see, we stand at the moment before the dawn. And we're snoozing. And Paul says in verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. You see, the age we live in is referred to as the night. It's referred to as the night because Satan is ruling and sin is reigning and blindness abounds. And Paul says, yes, it's dark outside, but the night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Wake up. And then he gives a second step. Because what's the first thing you need to do when you wake up? You need to dress appropriately. And so, notice what he says at the end of verse 12. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now he says, lay aside and put on. Those are terminology related to changing clothes. He's saying, you're a Christian, dress like it. Now that you've awakened out of your sleep, you need to get your pajamas off. And so he says, lay aside what? Lay aside the deeds of darkness. And what are the deeds of darkness? Well, he helps us with that answer because he catalogs some of them in verse 13. 
He names six things in verse 13, and he gives them to us in three pairs. You know what I find interesting? This was written 2,000 years ago, and nothing has changed. Man is the same. Sin is the same. Darkness still produces the very same things. Notice these six things in verse 13. The first pair is carousing and drunkenness. Carousing means literally riots or orgies. Today we call them wild parties. And that's what many people live for. They live for the weekend. They live for the nightlife. They live for spring break. They live for the next Mardi Gras. They say, let's party. And then right along with that is drunkenness because that's what in many people's minds makes a party a party. That's part of the darkness. What did the commercial say? The night belongs to Michelob. Well, that's biblical because one of the deeds of the darkness is drunkenness. And then the second pair in verse 13 is sexual promiscuity and sensuality. That word sexual promiscuity is from the Greek word koite, which means bed. It's the same as our phrase today of going to bed with someone. And then he puts that alongside sensuality, which carries the idea of shameless excess. And what he's talking about here is what highlights our culture, uninhibited sexual abandonment. Uninhibited. People don't care. You see, it used to be that people sinned in secret. Today, people sin in the area of the sexual area, and what do they do? They write a book, or they make a movie. Or they organize a parade to promote their lifestyle. And then he gives a final pair in verse 13. He says, strife and jealousy. Did you get that? Strife and jealousy. He says, he mentions orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery. And then he says, strife and jealousy. You say, wait a minute. Those are respectable sins. Well, what is God telling us by putting these two things in this verse? I think God is telling us that He considers the person who causes division and dissension in the church just as wrong as the person who's going to orgies and getting drunk. You see, all six are in the same verse. Damaging the unity of the church by passing on rumors or by negative talk is a serious offense. In fact, it's so serious that Paul's going to mention it two more times before this book ends. Strife is persistent contention. This is the person who gets kicks out of causing fights. This is the person who just seems to enjoy being at odds with others. Strife. And secondly, jealousy. And that's just what it means. Envy. These are expressions of selfish relationships that end up in broken relationships. See, Paul says in verse 9, the whole law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. In this dark world, the opposite is the norm because what's the message? Love yourself. These are the deeds of darkness. And Paul says, lay them aside. Take off those deeds of darkness. And what am I to put on in their place? Verse 12 says at the end, and put on the armor of light. 
Now, armor reminds me that I'm in a spiritual battle. I'm to take off the deeds of darkness. I'm to put on the armor of light. Now, if you look in other passages like Ephesians 6 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll find some armor pieces listed. Pieces like the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the breastplate of love, the helmet of hope. See, those are all things you won't find in the darkness. They are characteristics of the light. They are qualities that only a Christian can enjoy. And that's our armor that is to shine in this dark world. And Paul says, put it on. And then he says it a different way if you slide down to verse 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is a relationship. And we are to put on a person, Jesus Christ, so that He lives in us and so that His qualities, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, love, hope, are manifest in us. And so Paul says, dress appropriately. Put off the deeds of darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus and the armor of light. And then the third step is to walk properly. Verse 13 at the beginning says, let us behave properly as in the day. Now I want you to notice something in that phrase. You are not in the day, but you are to walk as if you are in the day. You see, we are walking through this dark world. He says in verse 12, the day is at hand. It's not here yet, but we're to walk as if it were already here. You see, when the day dawns, it's not to change the way I'm walking. It should simply reveal the way I'm walking. Now, how do you maintain a proper walk? How do you walk like you're in the day in a dark world? How do you stay away from those deeds of darkness? Well, Paul gives us the key at the end of verse 14. He says, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He reminds us that not only are we still in this dark world, but we still have our fallen human flesh with all its selfish desires. And so Paul gives us the key here. He says, make no provision for your fleshly lusts. Now that word provision is a Greek word that literally means to give thought to. And it was used in their language to mean things like to care about or to provide for. In fact, this same word is used in 1 Timothy 5, 8 of providing for your family, meaning food, clothing, and shelter. And so Paul is saying here, don't provide what your lusts need. Now that raises an interesting question. What do your lusts need? What do your desire, your selfish desire, what do they need? What, what do your lusts need to survive and thrive? Well, that's real simple. They need nourishment. Have you ever thought about what nourishes your selfish desires? You know what you have to give? You know what you have to provide for your lusts in order to help them thrive and survive? What they nourish on is your attention. See, all you have to do is give them your attention and they start to thrive and survive and they start wanting more attention from you. 
What you give them is what this word literally means, and it means I give thought to it. When you're on a diet, do you go open the refrigerator door and just stand there saying, I'm just looking? I hope not. Because you see, there's a principle. Whatever gets my attention gets me. Isn't that true? Whatever gets my attention gets me. And you've got desires, fleshly desires from your fallen nature, and they're going, hey, look at me, give me your attention. And that's what they need. That's what you provide for them to let them flourish. And Paul says, don't provide for them. Don't give them that. James said in James 1.15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. That's an important phrase because it tells us something very important. It tells us that lust isn't sin initially. When lust conceives, it gives birth to sin. So lust is not sin initially. See, it's not sin until I provide for it, until I dwell on it, until I meditate on it, and then it becomes sin. So Paul is saying, don't give it your attention, stop it, where? Stop it in the mind. See, it goes all the way back to what he said in chapter 12 and verse 2. It's the renewing of your mind. And that's the key to our walk. Paul said it this way in Galatians 5.16. He said, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now again, I want you to notice something in that phrase. It didn't say, walk in the Spirit and you won't have those desires. It says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill those desires. There's a big difference. I talk to a lot of Christians. They say, well, I thought I was growing as a Christian, but I'm having those same old desires that I used to have. Well, hey, join the club. Because you will have those same desires for the rest of your life. The issue is, what are you doing with those desires. Do you hold on to them? Do you nurture them? Do you meditate on them? Do you provide what they need to flourish? Martin Luther said, you can't prevent the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. You see, you can't prevent thoughts from coming through your mind, but you can stop providing for them. You can stop dwelling on them. You can stop giving thought to them. You can stop meditating on them, and that's the key. And so Paul says, now that you know what to do, do it. Wake up. The dawn is breaking. Dress appropriately. Put off those deeds of darkness and put on Jesus Christ in the armor of light, and then walk properly as in the day. Don't you think it's about time? Let me close this morning with a poem that kind of sums this up. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and He shows me His plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, and I see how I blocked him here and checked him there and would not yield my will. 
Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though He loves me still? He would have me rich, but I stand there poor, stripped of all but His grace, while memory runs like a haunted thing down a path I can't retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears I cannot shed. I will cover my face with my empty hands. I will bow my uncrowned head. O Lord of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me and mold me to the pattern that thou hast planned. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word that you have shown us your grace. You have given us the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus. And not only that, but you have given us the power by your spirit to walk with you. And Father, as we read these exhortations today, I pray that we might be challenged to realize that we have a debt of love to everyone around us, everyone we come in contact with. And Father, I pray that we would be continually paying that debt as we demonstrate your love to others. And then, Father, I pray that we would also realize that the dawn is about to arrive. And Lord Jesus, you said that you're coming back and that coming is soon. And Lord, I pray that we might truly wake up and dress ourselves with you and walk in a way that gives you the glory. We thank you for the privilege of being able to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.